Hello, Realtors. Byron King, General Counsel, South Carolina Association of Realtors. Mike Christ is in the production facility. Uh, Tara Pitts, Esquire, is here. Tara, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Tara Pitts, your Director of Fair Housing and a member of the SCR legal team. Super. And today we have a special guest star uh, from the Grand Strand. Rennie, please introduce yourself to the Realtors. Hi, Rennie Dietrich, REMAX Southern Shores and REMAX Professionals in Myrtle Beach, Florence, and Charleston. I am currently a member of the SCR executive team and board of directors, NAR board of directors, and a past president of the Coastal Carolina Association of Realtors. Thanks. We appreciate you being involved in your leadership always. Uh, a reminder for the hotline, you can reach the hotline with any legal questions at 803-712-3478. You can email me, Byron, at screaltors.org, Tara at tpitts at screaltors.org, and Austin at screaltors.org as well. And, Brittany, you were talking about how you were involved. Kind of what we wanted to do is talk about, because um, you're a broker, we wanted to kind of get your perspective, because we're staff and attorneys. Uh, one thing we want to talk about, September is safety month, like the forewarn app. I know you're a big fan of the forewarn. Uh, how do you use it with your office and any testimonials from some of your agents? So I was actually fortunate enough to be on the committee, the committee chair, when we were investigating, deciding if we were going to actually go with the Forewarn app for SCR. And I, I love this app. I was introduced to it at an NAR convention. Um, and I thought it was fantastic. I feel like there's a lot of safety tips that NAR and SCR puts out, but it's always very reactive. Kind of maybe once we're in a bad situation, you know, steps to maybe get us out of that where I felt the Forewarn app really was something that we could do proactively. Our agents could check out the person that called in. As you know, we show a lot of vacant properties and we are in that crazy business. We run out and show properties to people we have never met before, not a great practice. Um, and with this app, it allows our agents to check in and say, if the person really is, you know, if they say their name is John Smith, they can check their phone number. Is it really John Smith? and maybe get a little intel about this person to see if, you know, what they're telling you is um, truthful. It's a shame we have to do it, but it's unfortunately the world we live in. Um, so I'm a huge advocate. I've heard a ton of agent testimonials um, about it. People are ecstatic that we are offering this as a member benefit, and I hope it continues. Um, it has served us well, even with the land scams, and I think that's something we're gonna talk about a little later, that when people call up with these vacant lands, they vacant land, you know, to list, um, they're able to put that information into 401 just to see if it is the person that they say it is. Um, so I love it. Biggest fan. So happy that we provide that as a member benefit. Super. Yeah. And if you do have a testimonial, please get in touch with the hotline because like Rennie was talking about, this is a pilot program for funding. So the more uh, realtors that call in and say, hey, this kept me out of harm's way uh, with this fake seller with a scam or even this person with a criminal background, and you're going to do this as part of your overall safety policy, but let us know your testimonials because that can help us get funding going forward when it comes up from a renewal for more funding. Daryl, on the hotline, what are some things you're hearing about safety and forewarn? Yeah, definitely it's been helping with the vacant land scams, as you mentioned, uh, which if you're not familiar with that, it's when a person will call to list a property that they're actually not the owner of, and it's normally a vacant uh, land or uh, just a vacant home where the real owner either is living in another state or maybe living somewhere else where they're not visiting that property daily, and that person then goes through all of the process and tries to, uh, you know, basically get that compensation and 
not the really sell the home because they don't have the right to sell the home. So this has been stopping people from getting scammed essentially and stopping it because sometimes this goes all the way to the closing table. And at that point, once funds are transferred, we're into a, a whole, uh, you know, a lot of things to try to get that money back. So I feel like it's been very helpful with people in reference to that, which is one of our biggest uh, scams that's been going on. Proactive, that's my one thing that I love about it. It's very proactive. Yeah. Puts the agent in the driver's seat and hopefully not get themselves into a situation that they ought not be in. And do you guys deal with a lot of the vacant land scams where you yes, live? Yes, we've had several in our office. One of them got to, right before the closing table, um, it got to the point where the fake seller was communicating with the attorney and basically said if the attorney wouldn't wire the funds, they weren't going to sign the documents. There was kind of like some red flags all along, but that was clearly in the attorney's like, I'm not wiring it. But we've had several since then um, that have just popped up. That the, And it's one that actually has been hit like three times. This oh, wow. one piece of land has been hit like three different times. We were one of the companies that were um, called and my agent was very, um, asked a lot of great questions and just knew that something was wrong um, and basically asked for more information. The seller wouldn't provide it mm -hmm. and never heard from them again. And my agent actually watched it on the MLS and saw that it popped up on the MLS again and reached out to that listing agent saying, this isn't, this isn't real, this isn't a real seller and sure enough, it wasn't. So what are some red flags that people can be looking out for with these fake sellers? Like what's something that could stand out as maybe not potentially being a, a real seller? So one thing is we ask for driver's license. Like if you're, if they're only going to communicate you with you on the phone, um, we had one that would only do text messages. It's like if you aren't, if you're not able to have a conversation, I get that you probably don't live here and that's not uncommon in our market area. But if you're only willing to have a conversation, um, he would only email back and forth with the attorney. Um, so we knew, like, why? You know, this attorney you hired to represent you, why wouldn't you communicate them, communicate with them the way you should? So there was just, a, you know, I, I'm a true believer in your gut. Mm -hmm. Your gut usually tells you, like, wow, there's something not right about this. And if you keep asking questions and keep asking questions, you tend to ferret out that perhaps... Um, this isn't real. In one situation, like this person had hacked into a medical facility and got the person's driver's license, social security, like knew oh, wow. all the information about this seller. Like, so no matter what we asked, like they knew. But again, it was, it was all because um, the attorney would not wire the proceeds. And wow. thankfully so. Right. Thankfully. Yes. I'm glad that worked out for you guys. Yes. yes. And, you know, so our, my biggest thing is, okay, we got ourselves into this. How can we protect ourselves from not getting into this again? Um, people always have nefarious reasons. What can we do to protect ourselves and protect these vacant sellers that aren't around here? And the only thing that I could come up with is you got to go old school and mail a letter. Send a letter in the mail to the seller that's on the tax records. And, you know, if it's the real seller, they're not going to be offended that they got a letter from you. You know, 99% of the time, it's the actual real seller that has no idea that someone has purported to be them and tried to sell their property. Yeah, that's yeah. where we first heard about it was Hilton Head and Grand Strand, where it's the neighbors don't know each other, it's vacant, it's high-value land. So when an innocent listing agent puts a sign there, the neighbors, oh, they're selling the property. So like you said, 
uh, get on courthouse retrieval through your MLS or old school tax records, mail letter to the, because uh, you're trying to find out if the seller's real or not. Right. They can spoof phone numbers, have fake emails. The forewarn, you can look them up and get mm -hmm. phone numbers and addresses to help determine. The thing I thought of is even calling the HOA sometimes. The HOA might have Ooh. some info or another point of contact to try to detect a fake seller. Um, and then with forewarn with like safety, what are some things you tell your agents? Not so much about fake sales, but say somebody's trying to lure somebody to male or female to assault them or rob them. What are some things that your agents do to try to deter that? So if it's, I mean, first of all, like we should do meet the person in the office, meet the person that you're meeting. That if they called you on the phone, don't just go show them vacant property. Have, start to ask those questions, get some documentation and verify that you are dealing with a person. Hopefully that doesn't have bad intentions, but it is, again, I feel like most people, like your gut tells you something is wrong. Um, bring someone with you, you know, make sure someone knows where you're gonna be, um, you know, have, have something where you can alert someone if something feels wrong. Um, so we just try to keep that in front of their mind. Like I, we're not here to scare anyone, but we're also here to protect people. Um, you know, you want to take care of clients, but you also have to take care of yourself as well. Yeah, exactly. So like for one, it's not perfect because it's a database, so it's Correct. not 100%. So it's part of your overall safety protocols, but it does give you kind of an instant background check. Correct. You can see, you know, somebody shows up kidnapping or armed robbery. Or record not found. Like, right. you know, if you put in a phone number um, and it says record not found, like to me, that would raise a red flag. Like, hmm, that's interesting. Not that it would be the end all be all, but to your point, if it is in there and you do see some criminal record of them, well, make sure that you have a buddy with you and, you know, play it smart. That's a good point. And then even open houses, uh, get the neighbors involved, take a colleague. And Dara always brings up, she's director of fair housing. What are some things with forewarned about uniformly using it with people to avoid fair housing issues too? Yeah, with brokerages, you want to make sure you're using it all the same way. So right. if you're looking people up before you go show them a house, that's perfectly fine. But you want to make sure all of your agents are Correct. doing that and not just, you know, looking them up in certain situations because then it could be um, looked at as discriminatory if it's not used uniformly. So that's uh, one thing. And also... With the criminal conviction, sometimes you have to weigh it. Like if it's, you know, something minor that was 20 years ago versus something violent that was in the last five years, you're, you're weighing those safety concerns with the also the right for people to be able to buy and sell real estate. So safety is, of course, your number one concern, but you want to weigh everything and make sure you're giving people a fair opportunity Absolutely. and not judging them outright. And then kind of related to safety, we're coming up October 16th to the 19th. We'll be in Savannah with, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Kentucky. A lot of people should be a great conference. Please attend. Bernie, you've been to some of these conferences. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say to realtors that are kind of on the fence? Should I go or not go? What would you say some benefits to going to some of these SCR or NER events? I think it's a great opportunity. It, it gets you exposure to not only other people to network with, but it gives you exposure to other ideas. Like, I feel like sometimes things we're last to get some of the ideas here. And so when you can be around other people and you can hear different ways of doing business, like that's what I love. Like there's no one perfect way to do things. Um, and it's just nice to hear from other people. They always have great speakers. Um, again, to maybe put light on something that you don't think about or you don't deal with. And I feel like a lot of things come from the West Coast that they trickle here. Um, so let's know about it ahead of time and start making a plan of action, how we can put it to practice in our business.
Fantastic. And Tara, you're, you're kinda, you've been on board a few years. What are some of your thoughts about meetings? What have you learned in your, because you go to even different, you go to Arello, I mean, not Arello, but you go to NARAB and some other uh, events. What are some events that you attend and what are your some pros of going to those events? Yeah, so I've been fortunate to attend the multicultural conferences this year and as part of our DEI initiatives. And it's really good to just see what's going on in different cultures. Uh, for example, I am going to the Hispanic um, conference which is at the end of the month and Hispanic home buyers are the largest growing minority class of home buyers which to me business wise because everyone's you know always focused on the business that means they're going to need realtors they're going to need agents to represent them as they're coming into these markets uh, so it's an opportunity to network and if you're an agent to get that business to expand into a different market but to also learn the different cultural competencies mm -hmm. that make you a good agent for different communities especially underserved, traditionally underserved communities. Um, it just gives you more knowledge about how to navigate that. So, and the networking, um, meeting, NAR often sends uh, their, uh, some high level people to the event. So you still get that networking aspect within our organization, but it's branching out to working with these other organizations and collabing and looking for opportunities to use grants or have first time home buyers events. Uh, it's just a better way to reach even more people and to bring them into the realtor side as well. Super. And then uh, you had some exciting news from the, the DEI committee about the Spanish explanation forms. Let me give a, a, a brief on that, please. Yes. Yeah, so we uh, this year we launched the Spanish forms translations for some of our most popular forms. And that's just to be a companion document, uh, all in Spanish, of, of our of direct translation of our English forms because of the fact that Spanish uh, speakers are a big growing class of home buyers. And we want to just make things inclusive. And of course, that's just the first language that we started with but we don't want to end there we want to just be as inclusive as possible and be able to service different communities and have them have their legal documents in a language that they read and write in fantastic and if you need training on harassment or safety the SCR lawyers uh, Tara can come do training either live in person or via zoom same with Austin same with myself um, and we can talk about safety at these big meetings big cities stay in groups and then, like harassment, you want to treat other people respectfully. It's a professional event. Behave professionally. Golden rule. Um, but also, if you see something, maybe try to intervene or get in touch with one of the leaders like Rennie or a staff person like uh, me or Tara or Nick or Austin to try to intervene and, and take care of some issues before they accelerate. Tara, you've been involved with like harassment policy. What are some uh, kind of a briefing on our harassment policy that you give when you give these trainings? Yeah, so we have a code of conduct harassment policy at SCR events, uh, and this is to protect realtors, staff, uh, people who attend our events, such as speakers. We want everyone to feel safe and really feel welcomed and not to be put in situations where they're harassed or intimidated or even some of the language that's used when someone could think it's funny when it could really be offending someone and making them feel uncomfortable. So that policy is put in place for, for different forms of harassment, uh, including sexual harassment, which is um, um, a form that's common at some of events that people go to because, of course, it is events where all adults, but you still have to keep it professional and know your role for being here, which is business related and, and making sure that people are feeling safe. So those uh, policies are put in place for that. And we do have a process by which we can handle harassment complaints based on that code of conduct policy. Um, 
And of course, like Rennie was saying earlier, we would prefer for things to not happen, but when they do happen, we want you to know that we have policies in place to help address these things. Then Rennie, you talked about harassment. What if, if your agent comes to you and they said, oh, this, this buyer was you know, vulgar or harass me or a, a seller with consumers. What are, what are some things you tell your agents when consumers <clears throat> are not behaving? So we actually had a situation with that. Um, if someone is upset, I tried to get in the middle and ferret it out um, between the agent and the consumer, whether it's the buyer or seller. And we actually had a situation where it was a buyer. And I just thought sometimes um, it just wasn't a connection between the agent and the consumer. That happens. Not everyone loves me. They, they may prefer tier over B. That's fine. And so usually I think it's, it starts off that way. But in this situation, um, when I called and I got to the bottom of it, um, the person was pretty um, forceful with me, but it doesn't matter. Like to me, I, it rolls off my back. I'm okay with that. Um, and then when I spoke with my agent, my agent was very clear that they wouldn't be working with this person, which this person doesn't normally act that way or talk that way or just, you know, that determined and shared with me some of the messages that they got. And they were so vulgar and so awful because um, normally I would just say maybe it just needs to be referred to someone else, another agent. And when I read them, I read the I read the messages. Um, it wasn't going to be a match with anyone. And so I just politely told the consumer that this isn't a great fit. Um, you know, there's a lot of great companies in our market. You know, you can, can conduct business with those. It just wasn't a great fit for us. To, there was no coming back. You know, you try to bridge the gap as best as you can, but there's just some things that one cannot. That's a good point because a lot of times I think people say, oh, these rules, why are they coming? And you would be shocked to see some of the messages, like you just mentioned, that me and Tara and Austin and Nick see. It would uh, it would shock your your conscience to see some of these. So these rules, unfortunately, are necessary. Mm -hmm. Like Tara said, we have a policy to handle it. And on the hotline, we always say, "Hey, always talk to your broker in charge." That's one of the things we always tell them. And then we're in kind of your wheelhouse, Rennie, uh, Forms Committee. Kind of talk about your background with the Forms Committee and what the Forms Committee does for the association and for the membership at large across the state. So I was the committee chair of the Forms Committee for years. I'm not sure how many years this year I am participating as a member and I love forms. I am the odd duck. I'm in good company with you guys. Mm -hmm. You guys love forms too. Um, so I was fortunate to be asked to be on the committee and it is a, there's a lot that's involved and I had no idea before I was on the committee what was involved. I mean, Usually it comes from other members about changes they would like to see or um, like, for example, we just did the buyer agency. We had to make a change on the buyer agency because of the code of ethics saying you're no longer, you cannot say your services are free unless you're getting no compensation. So that, that form change was pretty easy, but there are some form changes that are not. Like when we switched the contract from repair, repair procedure to due diligence, that was like a year and a half to two year discussion. We went back and forth and I can tell you there's probably about 10 to 12 of us on the committee and nothing ever goes yay or nay. There is a lot of discussion back and forth and what about this and what about this? Have you thought about this? Um, or I see a problem with this and this is why. There's a lot of discussion. These meetings are intense in the fact that because there is so much discussion. It's not ever just other than the buyer agency, which we still went back and forth on that one too. 
you're trying to make sure that you're encompassing everyone's opinion to make sure you put the best form for the entire state. This form covers the entire state. So we can't say we need to make this change because it affects my market or we're going to do this because it affects that market. We try to, when we make changes, it really has to affect the entire state, be a benefit for the entire state to make a change. And we simply don't make changes just to make changes. We try to, based on calls, like Austin is our SCR liaison. So that's another thing. It, it is all practitioners. We have one liaison and that's Austin. Um, and so it's not like Austin saying you must do this or Byron saying you must do this. It's not any of that. But Austin and Byron and Tara put their input in like, hey, these are the calls that we're getting on a legal hotline. And if it's something in our forms that need to address that so we can decrease the number of calls on the legal hotline, that comes into play as well too. But it is normally members that submit the information to their local association. The local association passes it up to the state and it's stuff we look at. There's some things that people are totally passionate about and the committee's like, it just, we don't think that will be the best decision for the whole state. It may be for this one unique situation, but it has to be, it has to solve a bigger problem, I guess is how we look at it. That's a good point, because I, I tell people on the hotline, you know, I could write it favoring the seller or the buyer, and so we try to find that sweet spot in the middle where if they were both negotiating where we would end up, um, that it would help with that. And I tell them also, like, the, the base contract, the 310, it's really for a residential resale, kind of a cookie-cutter transaction. Once you get outside that, you probably want to get your attorneys involved. A lot of times your closing attorneys will be happy to help you with language if you need that, too. Um, and one thing I took a note of when you're talking about the buyer agency agreement, where there's about a third <coughs> of the states that have buyer agency agreements. And you've all read, or, or maybe you can go Google it after this, the class action lawsuits that are going on out in the Midwest right now in Missouri and Illinois involving some large brokerages in AR. And like the ethics change where you weren't supposed to talk about doing it for free. And, and buyer agents bring a lot of value to the table. So mm -hmm. I think one thing on the hotline, kind of the pushback, they had never uh, had that conversation. They weren't trained. Um, so. Uh, are you training your agents how to have that conversation and figure a buyer agent? What are some things you bring up for the buyer agents to promote their value in the transaction? So as a broker in charge, like I feel it is my responsibility to educate my agents on the forms changes. I'm fortunate enough to be on the forms committee, but even if I wasn't, and there was a period of time I wasn't, anytime I knew about a forms change, it is my job to educate my agents. SCR does a phenomenal job of getting that information out, but I also feel like they need to hear it more than once. So it's important for them to know the change, why the change was made, you know, brainstorm ideas of how we can discuss it. And to me, the buyer agency form change is really about articulating your value proposition. And so we have been talking in our company probably for the last six to eight months to last year about, okay, think about what is your value? What do you do to earn your compensation? What do you do different than maybe other agents do? Not cutting down your competition, but knowing what value you bring. Always remembering, like, you know, back in the day, what's your elevator speech? And so it's just really understanding, educating the consumer. We just always, we feel everyone knows what we do. We feel like everyone knows how we get paid. We feel like everyone understands. Well, no, they don't. We do this every day. They don't. So we need to help them. And even if they've bought or sold in a different state, our state is very different. As you know, every state has different laws and we need to educate them on how business is done here, what the laws dictate that we do and what we can't do. So to me, our job 
as a realtor is to educate our client, not just assume they know what we do. That's a great point. That's a good, uh, you know, NER, uh, value of your membership, NER is fighting for your value as the buyer agent. Some of these trial lawyers uh, would like to see uh, buyer agents only get paid by the buyer, and a lot of first-time home buyers can't afford that, and it's the biggest transaction in their lives. So really, long-term, what they're trying, these plaintiffs and trial lawyers are doing could be harmful to first-time home buyers because uh, there is a lot of value to have representation in the largest transaction. You need someone to explain the forms. That's always been my biggest question about these lawsuits. It's like, we're supposed to help everyone. We're supposed to protect the public. But if for some reason, you know, you're not able to get money, are you saying that these people that can't afford it don't deserve it and don't need it? Like, I, I would say, oh, to the contrary, you know? They need someone to advocate for them. They need someone to explain the forms, help them, educate them. Clearly, they have their attorney, but by then the contract is already done. They need someone to help them. Super. And then one of the, you mentioned the due diligence. Um, what are some things uh, that you train your agents uh, that were used to the repair procedure and we went to due diligence? The lawyers love due diligence because it's kind of clean, but mm -hmm. I, I understand the realtors, it was a big change. And maybe there was a perspective that repair procedure kind of boxed the seller in. But really, on the hotline, we were getting calls where buyers were negotiating outside repair procedure. What are some things that you talk about in your sales meetings about due diligence pros uh, that you like about it? So not all of my agents loved due diligence. Um, I love it. So when it got rolled out, I was happy because I was... Um, I got asked all the time under repair procedure, does the seller have to do this? Or can my buyer ask for this? And I felt like I had to be the judge and I'm not the judge. I'm not an attorney and I didn't draft this contract. So I feel like it's easier. I don't think it's an, I don't think it's an advantage to either party. Like you had talked about when a form is done, we want it to be neutral for both buyer and seller. And I feel like this change makes both people negotiate it and doesn't box the buyer in. I feel like there was times in repair procedure that the buyer felt like they had to buy even though they didn't want to buy. Um, so I feel like this gives people that opportunity, the buyer, if they're not 100% happy, and we understand that not all sellers come to the table and negotiate, um, gives them that opportunity to say, you know what, this is the largest purchase I'm gonna make. I am not comfortable with how the negotiations went or didn't go. And it gives me the opportunity to pay money if that's how the contract was negotiated or not and get out and find a house that would better serve my needs. So it is making sure that you know when you're done like to me that like is the number one thing that I hammer home to my agent. Know you when your deadline is. Okay, if you're going to negotiate and use the repair addendum, make sure that's two to three days before your due diligence deadline so your buyer has chance to marinate on it and figure out yes i'm okay with it or no i'm not and then also has time to get that money to the seller if in fact there is a feed that is due that's like the biggest thing because a lot of people will say well i just have to give notice my deadline's today i just have to give the notice today i'm like no you 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 need to give notice and the fee has to be paid by the date by 6 p.m and a lot of people just think, well, I've given notice and that's all I need to do. So I feel like those are the two points that come up a lot. That's a good yeah. point, too, because you're talking about buyer agents and their value proposition. That'd be part of your, your elevator speech. Here's what I'm going to do during due diligence. I'm going to make sure we're calendared out. Because like you said, you've got a due diligence period, but really you need to make sure the buyer's getting their inspections, leaving time to negotiate and, and mm -hmm. leave time to terminate, too. Joe, what are some hotlines you're getting on due diligence? Yeah, so... Um, 
sometimes people feel like it just favors the buyer and the buyer can just walk away, um, which they can, but they have to, to properly terminate, they would have to pay that fee. And I think that's getting, <clears throat> excuse me, lost in translation that the buyer can just uh, give the notice of termination without the termination fee. If that is done, they are not properly terminated under due diligence. So I think understanding that and that your seller does have rights and does have mm -hmm. legal actions, breach of contract, things that they could uh, explore with their attorney if the buyer were to improperly terminate the contract. Um, another thing is not having enough time, like you were mentioning, Byron. Sometimes they say, well, the, the seller never responded, so the seller has to act when really everything is laid out in the contract. Everyone knows these deadlines. So if the seller were to not respond to a request, the buyer still is under that obligation to either terminate or continue with the contract regardless of any inaction, maybe by the seller. Of course, we want all parties to communicate with each mm -hmm. other. Uh, we don't want you to wait till that six o'clock and then call them and say, oh, well, you know, we want you to communicate and know what's going on prior to the deadline, uh, whether that person's going to go forward or they're going to properly terminate or improperly terminate. Um, I always want the communication, but still, if a party has to act based on the contract, they need to act. They can't wait on, you know, the, the other party. Oh, I always said no response is a response. I love that. No yeah, response that. is a response. Yes. So the, they didn't respond. That is their response. You have to, they're going to do nothing and you got to make your decision based on that. And also, uh, we also get calls about maybe something wasn't disclosed, so now mm -hmm. the buyer feels like, oh, I don't have to pay the termination fee when it's not set up for that. Correct. The buyer would still need to pay that termination fee, and if it's any breaches based on non-disclosure or any other legal remedies that they can go after the seller for, that would be separate from properly terminating. Two rights don't make a wrong, so you want to make sure you're still doing things by the book and correct. Super. And then uh, kind of what we do is kind of have a little breaks when we're talking about this. So we're going about the license plate. Terry, you want to talk about the license plates, please? Yes. We um, at the DMV, they offer this license plate tag, which says Home Ownership, the American Dream. And it goes into a, a fund where uh, we're in charge of the each purchase of this license plate. Uh, how about a hundred dollars goes into a grant fund which then we're allowed to designate that back to Habitat for Humanities that use it on new construction projects this is a part of you know wanting more construction the housing inventory shortage things that are common problems all across the country this is just one way that we're helping work on that so each year those grants all of the money that's accumulated from the purchase of the license plate is then dispersed to uh, Habitat for Humanities who apply for the grant and are using it based on new constructions. Typically, it depends on the amount, but typically everyone who applies and is qualified is able to receive that grant and the total amount of the fund will be split evenly between the applicants. Uh, so this is just a, a little something that we do to, to help in uh, in partnership with the state and the DMV. So we encourage you guys to buy this uh, license plate, especially as Realtors. And it does have the um, Realtor R. So this is another way to brand yourself and to show you know, who you are. Someone might see your car at Target or something and then want to, uh, that could be a way to generate business by having that branding. So, and it supports a good cause. And that will be launching very soon, probably this month, and the applications will be due November 1st so that we're able to give that money out this year. And then next year, we'll do it again. Awesome. Fantastic. And for anyone thing we're excited about you being here, we can talk to you about how things work in the real world in the, in the marketplace. <laughs> 
So one thing we're always curious about, how do you train your agents, like a new agent or even an experienced agent? What are some things you do in your brokerage to make sure people stay up uh, with the news and information? So for brand new agents, we have a director of agent development that teaches them the forms, teaches them the systems, teaches them what they need to know to be a realtor. Um, but as things change, that affects everyone. Um, and so we do meetings, and so everything is rolled out in a meeting. We actually have a meeting, an all-company meeting next week, which we'll be rolling out all the new form changes. We'll go through them, um, have them screenshotted so they can know what it is. But it is consistent. Like there's, um, I maybe send out a video or an email, and then we kind of try to follow it up with a meeting. Just again, sometimes people, as we know, don't hit, see it the first time. Um, but again, it's super important that our agents know it's their job to know what changes happen in the industry. Um, SCR always sends out emails. Our local association does, but sometimes they just too quick with the delete to make sure they understand. It's their job to know. Super, and if you want to watch some of our videos, we got the SC Realtors YouTube channel. Mike has posted those. Sharon has links to those in our uh, weekly e-newsletter. Uh, you can go back and watch those videos. And even our high volume watches are 4,000 views. And we got 30,000 realtors, so 4,000, that means what, 26,000 people aren't watching the videos. So just repeating the message over and over, right. that's, a, that's a great point. And as brokerages, you are allowed to, one of your member benefits is having one of the attorneys join in on these team meetings, uh, whether that's on Zoom or if, uh, you know, the schedules permit coming to one of the larger meetings where we can talk to you guys about form changes or ethics or harassment training. Because sometimes, you know, you as the broker, if you do, they might, when they keep hearing it, even if they just only hear it from us or only hear it from you guys, they can be tuned out. So it's good to mix it up where that information voice. comes from, a different voice, same information, but different voices. Super. And then policy. So we, all, we offer a long policy that can be edited for the brokerage and kind of a short PDF policy that complies with license all where it's just check boxes. So, uh, Randy, with like policies, um, like your brokerage policy, how do you implement that in your shop? So anytime someone joins our company, we supply them with a copy of the policy manual, which they sign. That's part of their onboarding. As we make changes, those are disclosed to them to let them know, hey, this is what changed. Um, don't necessarily have them re-sign anything, but let them know um, so they stay up to date on what has changed and why it's changed. Um, you know, we don't, I typically try to update our policy manual yearly, usually just minor tweaks here and there, but um, you know, when we have new form changes or a new form that's implemented that we really want people to use, clearly we make sure that that edit is in there so everyone knows. That's good that you guys update it yearly because sometimes we get calls on the hotline where a policy hasn't been updated in a very long time. And of course, things evolve, things change. Um, I know earlier we were talking and you mentioned making sure your policies comply with the new laws and the new forms changes because everything has to go together. So. You know, sometimes you won't have to update it because right. nothing will change. But if there's been a big change to something that affects our industry, then it's important to review those policies. Or if something comes up, if you see a behavior that you didn't uh, put in the policy before that you're like, oh, I don't, you know, necessarily want to conduct business that way, you're allowed to update that as the broker right. and just make sure that everyone is um, aware of those changes. Super, and then kind of shifting gears to insurance. So we'll have September 21st at noon, we'll have the direct South Carolina Director of Department of Insurance on a webinar. Please tune in that and ask questions. 
Uh, Ernie, what are some insurance issues you're seeing in the marketplace right now? We have quite a bit in our market. It is insurance is hard to come by. A lot of insurance providers have gotten out of our state. Um, the ones that have are trying to recoup all of their losses from our hurricanes and different payouts that they've done throughout the United States. Um, I, for one, have, my husband and I own an investment property and it's on the ocean. It's a beachfront condo and our policy last year for the whole condo, not just us personally, was $400,000, which I thought was a lot to begin with. It's 320 units or something of that sort. And this year when we renewed, we were told that we should be happy. I use happy because it went from 400,000 to 2.1 million, which is the annual premium, which is a lot. Um, so that was quite jaw dropping um, because of, you know, claim again, claims and being close to the ocean, but it's not just by the ocean. It's affecting our market tremendously. And again, I worry about affordable housing for people that can't afford these insurance assessments, all these HOAs, we have a lot of HOAs in, in our market and the HOA are, ju are just stewards of our money, of, of the owner's money. It's, there's not like a separate entity out there. So they're having to assess owners um, to make up the shortfall that they've had in their budget because they certainly wouldn't have budgeted for the increase they had. So that's really important. Like we're talking to our agents about making sure when they're working with buyers that they get they talk to their insurance agent right away. If you didn't do it before you write the offer, which probably most people don't, do it within their due diligence period because some people are getting insurance quotes that are way higher than they expected. To be proactive, just letting them know that this is a problem. We, we need to make sure that you're aware and that you feel comfortable and you can afford the payment. Let's be honest, Let's we gotta make sure that they can afford what they want to buy. Um, so there's a lot of that. Um, we're also having issues with lenders um, not being able to get the right, the master policies aren't saying what it needs to say. Um, so we have lenders that aren't being able to lend because of insurance issues in the master deed. So we've kind of got twofold. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things we've been seeing is, if you watch in the national news, some company insurance companies are refusing to write new policies in certain areas of the United States, so availability. So the Forms Committee created kind of the flood insurance insurance document that basically says, like you said, you know, shop around, shop early, do it during due diligence so you can get out if you can't afford it. Um, and it says, hey, availability and cost are gonna go up in the future most likely. Right. Um, and another thing we heard, you know, you're talking about this, the HOA with a large insurance. What we're hearing about is because it's such a large increase, sometimes that assessment will be paid over years. So forms committee has been working on a form to try to handle that. Jerry, what are some insurance issues you hear on the hotline uh, in your experience? Um, one that has to do with fair housing is the with someone that has an emotional support animal and maybe an HOA or insurance company has breed restrictions on the type of animals that can be at that property uh, and that they will uh, provide insurance for. So with that, the, if it is a emotional support animal or a service animal that is federally protected under those federal fair housing laws as well as um, state and local laws so it, it wouldn't be as long as you know of course everything is documented in the way that needs to be and it's meeting all the prerequisites to be a, um, a ESA or a service animal then you cannot be denied just simply based on an insurance and I, I just had this call recently where it was actually the HOA attempting to 
put a tenant out and it was the property management company who, who was calling, but you're not allowed to just um, outright deny it based on uh, those federal protections. So if that is happening, you can give us a call at the hotline and we can talk more about it. But it, it isn't just, just because you know, you may, the owner may have to get a different insurance or a more expensive insurance in some cases doesn't outright deny them from being able to, from that tenant, from being able to have that uh, animal. Super. So that's all my topics and you're kind of wrapping up and I'll let y'all make your closing uh, statement here in a second. But I want to promote, we have mediation class coming up October 23rd through the 25th. The 26th will be on Budsman training. That'll be with Stephanie Walker. Please contact the hotline if you're interested in becoming a mediator or an ombudsman. Um, and any, any kind of closing thoughts from the, the broker's perspective? Just stay, just stay aware. Stay plugged in and stay aware and read your emails and you'll find out what's going on so you can help your agents. Fantastic. Darren, closing thoughts? No, just contact the legal hotline with any questions and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and keep it safe, legal, and profitable. Mike, thanks for producing as always. We'll see you next time, Realty.